Hi everyone and welcome to the second session of Dear Mr. Potter, the Storywonk Harry Potter Seminar. We are going to discuss tonight chapters 4 and 5 of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone and what is more, we're going to try and be in and out in 90 minutes. That is my pledge to you. It almost certainly won't come true, but hey, it's nice to have a goal, right? If we've learned anything from these chapters, it's that the world can take unexpected turns at a moment's notice. Tonight, we are going to go all the way from the shack on the rock in the sea all the way to uh, Diagon Alley and back again. And we're going to have a lot of exposition exposited at us and a lot of foreshadowing foreshadowed. There's a lot of incidental detail here. A lot of the stuff we're going to cover tonight I'm going to introduce more directly in upcoming seminars. For example, the notion of the houses of uh, Hogwarts is introduced tonight, uh, thanks to that strange pale-faced child that Harry runs into in the store that I'm sure we'll never see again. Rather than talk about the houses tonight, though, I'm going to wait until we have a fuller picture. That's going to be true for any number of incidental details and little, little pickups that we're going to hit tonight. Instead, we're going to focus on the transition between worlds. You'll notice from the title card that just aired that this is called Another World. We are going to transit from the mundane to the magical and back again today. And we're going to look at the ways in which these two worlds interact and exert pressure upon one another and manifest themselves in unexpected ways. We're also going to approach for the first time the big theme, or (laughs) I guess that's unfair, one of the big themes of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, and I dare say, Harry Potter as a series. Hi, everyone. Allison is teasing me already for for attempting a time limit promise. Hi, you'll see. We'll be in and out. (laughs) The guys in the YouTube chat are discussing uh, what drinks would be appropriate. Oh, butterbeer. Yes, yes. There is a butterbeer recipe. I think for... Uh, I am sticking to my faithful uh, red wine tonight, because if I have whiskey, that's generally a bad thing during a seminar, as you know from from uh, covering Outlander. <laughs> but I think that for the final session, when we sit down and watch the movie, we should definitely have butterbeer. I will, I will get an official Storywonk-appointed recipe, I guess, and we'll all imbibe together. Does that sound good? Slash dangerous? Slash ridiculous? Seems like a good match. So let's begin. Just a couple of very quick things before we get into it tonight. Oh, I should say, too, you can, of course, contribute to the conversation via the chat on the YouTube page. That is at youtube.com slash storywonk. If you were listening to this after the fact, I hope you will join us next week at 9 p.m. Eastern at that aforementioned YouTube page where we will cover session three of this seminar. Uh, You can also, of course, tweet at me on Twitter. Just use the hashtag SWDMP, which you can see on the little board here behind me. That is storywonk, dear Mr. Potter. Swadomp. That is our clarion call for this entire seminar exercise. So before we get into the details of tonight's seminar, a couple of quick pickups from last week. And I want to prompt you just with a general question. How did you enjoy these chapters? Did you like this? Did you like tonight's reading? Did it work for you as well as last week's chapters did? I think the response to the first three chapters of the book was fairly positive. Did these chapters ignite your enthusiasm for the book? Did they stall your enthusiasm for the book? How do you feel they worked out for you? I did want to pick up on one uh, one specific point that a few of you emailed to me during the week, and I know that at least uh, Lance called out on the forum, if not others besides Lance. Um, you guys wondered about the, the special significance of Harry being 11, and I wanted to say yes, 11 years old is the year, in England at least, where you transit from primary education into secondary
secondary education. The secondary education system, the secondary schooling system in England is a seven-year process, of course, which is a number familiar to fans of Harry Potter. So yes, that is the reason that, that Harry is turning 11. That is why it is significant. Um, is there a significance beyond that? Well, that's a point that remains open to debate. Um, we're going to get a couple of key dates and a couple of time frames this evening that we're going to help, that, that we're going to keep track of that will help to illuminate any possible temporal significance in the backstory of Harry Potter as we move forward. Let's, oh, a, a strong response to these chapters. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. The, um, yes, the world building is, is just great. It's deft and it's fast and it's light. I have to say, Rereading these chapters tonight, particularly chapter five, of course, um, rereading these chapters really renewed my enthusiasm for J.K. Rowling's writing. You know, I think she takes her licks and, and fairly, you know, well deservedly, I guess, for this first book. There are some heavy handed passages in this book. There are some lines that don't land as well as they might. But generally, she gets a lot of praise for her world building, for her vision, for the, for the magical uh, luminosity of her prose. And that's obviously well deserved. Two, what struck me though reading it tonight is this lightness of touch. She is, is capable of navigating those tonal shifts beautifully. She's capable of, of really drawing forth incidental details that are greater than they seem. Incidental, tiny, tiny little observed details that really illuminate the world around you. That, is particularly true when we get to Gringotts. We'll talk about that in due course. Yes, Melissa says, my main reaction to the book so far is that it's cute, but I don't quite get what the big deal is yet. Not, <laughs> Excuse me, not yet. Anyway, don't kill me. Don't worry at all, Melissa. Um, the book hasn't even really started yet, you could argue. Um, we'll get to that next week. <laughs> all right. All right, let's get into this. Excellent, excellent. Oh, I'm a Mad Hatter on YouTube says Diagon Alley is a complete world that seems like it has always existed and we're just coming back to it. That is absolutely true. When we emerge through that archway and suddenly there's this riotous explosion of, of, of color and of detail and of movement and of action, it's beautifully done. And we'll draw a very close and careful comparison between that and the final arrival at Ollivander's. When I'm talking about the tonal shifts in this passage of the book, there's no more marked or important or influential example than that. But all of that awaits us at the end of tonight's reading, because for now, someone has just been banging on the door, and we have to get right to it. We pick up at the beginning of chapter four, right from the cliffhanger at the end of last week's reading, of course. Hagrid arrives at the storm-tossed shack and proceeds to make himself at home, um, conspicuously at home, in fact. This is one of these great details. I mentioned last week that we're going to be tracking the division, the distinction that is drawn between the wizard world and the muggle world, and the ways in which those distinctions are muddied and confused and purposefully contrary to your expectations. That is perhaps never more immediately and strikingly true than it is now. You know, I celebrated uh, Dumbledore's uh, put-outer back there in the first chapter because I love the, the mundane application of this magical appliance. Well, here we have something far more mundane, far more simple, and we get it, of course, from the person who exemplifies this, this crossing between worlds most perfectly, that is Hagrid. He shows up, he exerts his authority, he... On this magical mission, <laughs> you know, he's, he's flown here, he's, he's 
undergone this great traversal. You know, there's implication at least that he's he's tracked the Dursleys here, that this has been a, a mission that has taken him several days, perhaps. But he arrives, and the first thing he does is to make the shack warm, to make it homely, to make it comfortable in a way that the Dursleys never did. The the reflexivity of this, that the Dursleys left their quiet suburban home, their peaceful mundane home, they were driven out, not by magic, though obviously in a sense by magic, they were driven out rather by their inability to address and confront magic, by their inability to change. That has driven them so far out of the mundane world that they are now out in this fantasy world. The idea of this shack on a rock in the sea is is preposterous when compared to the quiet conventionality of number four Privet Drive. The Dursleys have lost their grip on the mundane world because they couldn't accept the possibility of a magical world, or, or at least acknowledge the immediacy of that magical world. And now here, Hagrid comes into this ridiculous, fantastical environment and renders it immediately mundane and comfortable. Let me tell you, as a British person, <laughs> there are a few things in the world more immediately domestic than sausages. That's just the way of it. Oh, Chris on Twitter is uh, linking to his fanfic about the uh, the wizard side of the letters. I meant to link to that in my notes, Chris. Yes. Uh, go and follow SWDMP on Twitter. Hashtag SWDMP. Find Chris Kelworth there and, and follow that link because very good. <laughs> very good. <laughs> um Ariane actually raises an interesting point here on uh, on the YouTube chat. Is it just me or is the description of Hagrid's size never consistent? He seems to get bigger and smaller as is necessary for the situation. Yes, and right up front here, we have this idea when he gets angry, he seems to grow in size. I don't know. I honestly don't remember if this is specifically addressed in one of the later books. If there is some kind of magical explanation given for the fact that he seems to grow and shrink. Besides being, you know, outsized, he seems to grow from being large human size to being, you know, preposterously, fantastically large. I don't remember if there's a magical explanation given for that in the later book, but certainly within the pages of this book, I find it fascinating that that his... How can I put this? His essential magicness, his essential and innate personality, I mean, this isn't even a function, I guess, of his magic. This is just who he is, that it waxes and wanes in this way, and that it's reflective of these emotional tides and movements and shifts. It's fascinating stuff. Let's... uh keep pushing on here. There are a couple of interesting beats here. The, the one beat that really stood out to me this time was uh, Vernon Dursley holding the gun. He comes out with a rifle, warns Hagrid that he is armed. I find it interesting, and I'm, I'm kind of at a loss to fully explain this, but I find it interesting that in this most British of British books, that is just comedic and silly. And yet, I feel that if this were an American book, not even necessarily set in America, but if this had been written by an American author, I feel that there would be a different cadence to that. Um, and I'm, I'm striving, of course, not to draw simple, crude generalizations. That's not at all what I mean. Um, there, there is something to the artful whimsy of this that, that kind of robs the gun of its potency. And I think that in American literary culture... It's nigh impossible to rob a gun of its potency. I certainly can't think of any examples. How do you guys think that would have played out had this been an American novel? Let's move on, though. I'll, I'll give you some time to... <laughs> oh, and I'm seeing a lot of love here, yes, for the uh, 
<laughs> I'm seeing a lot of love here for the titles of the books that Harry will address. Don't worry, I have that on a slide. I'll, uh, I'll get right to that directly. In the meantime, though, let's arrive at our first slide tonight as Hagrid catches on to what has been happening all this time. He passed the sausages to Harry, who was so hungry he had never tasted anything so wonderful, but he still couldn't take his eyes off the giant. Finally, as nobody seemed about to explain anything, he said, I'm sorry, but I still don't really know who you are. The giant took a gulp of tea and wiped his mouth with the back of his hand. Call me Agrid, he said. Everyone does. And like I told you, I'm keeper of the keys at Hogwarts. You'll know all about Hogwarts, of course. Uh, no, said Harry. Hagrid looked shocked. Sorry, Harry said quickly. Sorry, barked Hagrid, turning to stare at the Dursleys, who shrank back into the shadows. It's them as should be sorry. I knew you weren't getting your letters, but I never thought you wouldn't even know about Hogwarts for crying out loud. Did you never wonder where your parents learned it all? All what? asked Harry. All what? Hagrid thundered. Now just wait just one second. He had leapt to his feet. In his anger, he seemed to fill the whole hut. The Dursleys were cowering against the wall. Do you mean to tell me, he growled at the Dursleys, that this boy, this boy, knows nothing about, about anything? (laughs) And we'll get, of course, to the specifics of what Harry doesn't know anything about in just a few moments. This, though, really struck me, because we know from the first chapter that Hagrid was already saddened, profoundly saddened, by the thought of leaving Harry with the Dursleys. But apparently, the thought that the Dursleys may conceal Harry's true nature, Harry's personal history, from him, didn't occur to him. This is, in a sense worse. And it forces us to ask a question that will recur through the entire book, but honestly, there's no better time to address it than right now. What would Harry's life have been like if the Dursleys had told him the truth? Can we imagine how that young boy, even assuming that he'd been told it in a way that is accessible and understandable and, and, you know, quantifiable by a young child, how do we feel he would have responded to that? Can we say definitively here and now that the Dursleys did Harry a disservice by telling him little or nothing about his parents? And, of course, there's the argument that had they told him enough, a meaningful amount, that they would have been compelled to tell him everything or the lie would have been greater, you know? To tell him simply that his parents were killed in a car crash removes the possibility of further interrogation, further discussion, and possibly keeps Harry safe. Far more than that, though, we're going to see through the course of this book that in a number of unexpected ways at unexpected times, Harry is not going to represent the wizarding world. He is going to represent the muggle point of view at Hogwarts. He is going to be the voice of quiet domesticity, of quiet valor. He's going to represent, in a very real and compelling sense, his background, the Dursleys' background. And he's going to gain strength from that. He's going to be enriched and emboldened by that. And certainly, of course, in a literary sense, it gives us a great point of access into the fantastical world of the novel itself. So, would Harry have been better off? Your mileage may vary. I'm hard pushed and and obviously you know as we get some of the details about about why these details were kept from harry it's a little more difficult to be sympathetic to the dursleys at all but at the same time 
it's difficult to say that the truth would have served Harry, that it would have helped Harry. <laughs> Though he's de- he's definitely approaching the point at which the truth becomes more than a kindness. It becomes, you know, an obligation. Yes. Yes, Allison said, didn't Dumbledore say in the beginning that he preferred Harry to be ignorant of his infamy? That uh, the Dursleys, the Dursleys, she says, excuse me, my Twitter updated it in a convenient moment. The Dursleys, Allison says, fulfill that. Yes, they do. They absolutely do. But they do so by shrouding the whole of the truth. Um, there's a beat in a moment. And it's one of these little inconsequential details. We, we get so many details. We get so many names and dates and ideas thrown at us in these chapters. And not all of them can be picked up. Not all of them can be dwelt upon. Some of them, though, it's tempting to see a greater instruction there. It's tempting to see a greater significance. But you would think that if the significance were there, it would be called out. I'm specifically talking in this moment about... Well, you know, let, let's get to it. Um, I'm trying to remember if I pulled this out as a slide or not. Try not to anticipate myself, because to do so would be to delay the whole experience, and we have to be in and out in 90 minutes. That's the deal, right? <laughs> it seems that I didn't pull it out. I absolutely should have done. Um, all right, the element that I'm thinking of directly is uh, when Hagrid responds to the notion of a car crash and exclaims that it is simply impossible that uh, Lily and James Potter could have died in a car crash. And reading that today for the first time, I was struck by the possibility, is that the first time that Harry hears his parents' names? You would think that if it was, it would be given some kind of weight by the narrative. But at the same time, it doesn't seem like the kind of detail that the Dursleys would spend a lot of time discussing, and we know from earlier chapters how strictly they forbid any kind of questions. It's it's the kind of detail that that sometimes when you read these books, <laughs> particularly when you give them this kind of close analytical reading, when you're purposefully looking for meaning and for connections and for sparks, and the first time that things are mentioned and the first time that, that information is passed from one character to another... Oftentimes what happens is that you get these little ideas stuck in your head, or I do, anyway. And this is one of the ones that has stuck with me today. Um, All right. Let's keep going. Um, So let's move forward to, of course, our pivotal moment. This is perhaps the single greatest moment in the entire book. Oh, E.R. Lamp has given me on Twitter the actual uh, page reference here. Yes. How could a car crash kill Lillian James Potter? It's an outrage, a scandal. Yes, of course. Um, All right. So let's see the actual letter itself. Harry, you're a wizard. There was silence inside the hut. Only the sea and the whistling wind could be heard. About what? gasped Harry. A wizard, of course, said Hagrid, sitting back down on the sofa which groaned and sank even lower. And a thumping good on outside, once you've been trained up a bit. With a mum and dad like yours, what else could you be? And I reckon it's about time you read your letter. Harry stretched out his hand at last to take the yellowish envelope, addressed in emerald green to Mr. H. Potter, the floor, hut on the rock, the sea. He pulled out the letter and read, Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, Headmaster Albus Dumbledore. Order of Merlin, First Class, Grand Sorcerer, Chief Warlock, Supreme Mugwump, International Confederation of Wizards. Dear Mr. Potter, 
We are pleased to inform you that you have been accepted at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. Please find enclosed a list of all necessary books and equipment. Term begins on September 1st. We await your owl by no later than July 31st. Yours sincerely, Minerva McGonagall, Deputy Headmistress. How good is that? How great is that? <laughs> we are introduced in one deft stroke to Harry's immediate future, and we receive for our first time our sense of what the structure and the frame of this novel is going to be. Before we get into the details of the letter itself, I mentioned last week that uh, I loved the addresses on the envelopes, and this is my absolute favorite. Mr. H. Potter, The Floor, Hut on the Rock, The Sea. That is so beautifully specific in its, in its whimsy, in its fantasticality, in its sense of wonder and yet, you know, absolute mundanity. Even the way that Hut on the Rock is, is beautifully uh, hyphenated there. I just love it. I just love it. Oh, yes, and ER Lamp is pulling out the uh, the change here from the British edition to the American edition. In the British edition, it says, you have a place at Hogwarts. Yes, of course. Um, and that's obviously significant. Yeah. Yeah, I should I should strive to pull out all of these differences because, well, not perhaps all of these differences, but certainly some of these differences. Um, because, yes, that is a striking one. That's perhaps the most striking. Yeah. Um, so this letter, as I said, it introduces us to this sense of our frame, the sense of the direction of our story. It gives us the first kind of point of transition for Harry, the first, you know, external, uh, incontrovertible point of transition for Harry. And what do we see right up top there but the mundanity of the letter? <laughs> I love everything that is in those brackets there, right under Albus Dumbledore's name. The reference to Merlin stresses the kind of the, the fictional frame of the novel. It, it emphasizes that we are inheriting this ancient and, and worldly tradition. But then the wonderful kind of formalized abbreviations that follow it. <laughs> I love the implication of a bureaucracy that is, that is, you know, present in the, the formalized depiction of these very titles contrasted with, yes, again, the whimsicality of the uh, Mugwump, of the Chief Warlock, of the Grand Sorcerer. I love this stuff. And again, we're seeing that the divisions between the mundane and magical worlds are nothing like as simple as we may think, you know? There's there's a wizard world, and, and Hagrid in particular and several other, you know, peripheral characters are going to emphasize throughout these two chapters that the wizard world is separate, is different, is, is somehow... <laughs> somehow reserved from, and I think the implication is better than, the mundane world of muggles. But this is this is representative of that world and yet exhibits this complete, quiet, you know, local government kind of, of bureaucracy. It's, it's beautifully, beautifully done. And yes, of course, the, <laughs> the magical elements in the text. Witchcraft and wizardry, and of course, we await your owl. That brings us to one of my favorite moments. And, and a moment that could be an absolute poster child for the concept of show, don't tell. Um, when writers are told to show rather than tell, the instruction carries with it the, the 
the suggestion that one ought not offer explanation verbally. One should always see a new idea or a new uh, component piece of the world building in action so that it can be understood in its application, not in its abstract. And that's what we have right here. We have this line, we await your owl. Harry asks about the owls, and rather than Hagrid saying, as would happen in so many other fantasy novels, including some that I have written, wizards always use owls to send their messages, Harry. Rather than that, Hagrid pulls out this rumpled, bedraggled bird, scrolls a message, and sends it on its way. And we see everything. We understand fully the function of owls, the way that they're used, the way that they work, we understand the whole thing without having to be given a word, a letter of exposition about them. It's really quite beautifully put. It, it's it's eloquent in its simplicity, and that's something we're going to see again throughout these chapters. So this is the first time that Harry learns the truth about his parents. As I said, as I postulated, possibly up to and including their actual names. Um, in fact, there are more than a few names that Harry learns here that we already knew, including Rubius Hagrid, including Albus Dumbledore, including the brilliant and beautiful Minerva McGonagall. What a, uh, I'm basically going to have to pause at the introduction of every single name in this book, just to kind of, of bask in it. It's so good. And it's, it's, it's the kind of writing that is so easy to get wrong. There are shelves full of children's literature, full of YA novels, full of traditional fantasies with this kind of name work, wherein they're all forced and tired and, and flat on the page. J.K. Rowling brings not just that, that almost almost punish level of, of humor to these names, but she does it with such illuminative lyricism with such a light, deft touch. I, I adore it. Minerva McGonagall's one of my all-time favorites. And of course, the other name that we learn here is Voldemort. We'll get back to that in just a moment. Um, because first, I want to I want to sit on that line that that um, that Er quoted to me earlier. Yes, that, that inexplicably I don't have on a slide tonight. Um, I wanted to sit on that line that that uh, it's it's an outrage to suggest that Lily and James Potter could have been killed in a car crash, and I just wanted to leave as a question for you guys: Is Hagrid suggesting that wizards cannot be injured by such mundane things? Is he suggesting that a wizard is better equipped to take care of himself or herself or their selves? Or is he saying that these people, these individuals, not wizards as a breed, but these people were so special that for them to die in such a prosaic, mundane manner is is an insult to who they were, not to their special nature, but to their specific greatness? I go back and forth on that. That's one of those other things that, that hovers in the back of my head. The other thing that I would, I would encourage you to look at here, why can't Hagrid spell Voldemort's name? We saw, as he wrote the letter to Dumbledore, that he's actually a decent penman. He can spell functional words. He's not an idiot. I think that when you gloss over that line the first time, the tendency is to think, oh, that Hagrid, not the brightest bulb in the box. But I'm not sure that that's the case. I'm not sure that there isn't something more specific happening here. And of course, you know, Hagrid, for all of his faults, he is not weak or cowardly or even, I dare say, particularly superstitious. And yet he adheres very strongly 
to this principle that uh, Professor McGonagall laid out in chapter one, this idea that we never say his name. This idea that Dumbledore went out of his way to quash. All right, let's get into the hideous details of what happened on that fateful night. So this opens on exactly that point. No, I can't spell it. All right. Voldemort. Hagrid shuddered. Don't make me say it again. Anyway, this this wizard, about 20 years ago now, started looking for followers. Got him, too. Some were afraid. Some just wanted a bit of his power. Because he was getting himself power. All right. Dark days, Harry. Didn't know who to trust. Didn't dare get friendly with strange wiz- with strange wizards or witches. Terrible things happened. He was taken over. Of course, some stood up to him. And he killed them. Horribly. One of the only safe places left was Hogwarts. Reckon Dumbledore's the only one you know who was afraid of. Didn't dare try taking the school. Not just then, anyway. Now, your mum and dad were as good a witch and wizard as I ever knew. Ed boy and girl at Hogwarts in their day. Suppose the mystery is why you know who never tried to get them on his side before. Probably knew they were too close to Dumbledore to want anything to do with the dark side. Maybe he thought he could persuade them. Maybe he just wanted them out of the way. All anyone knows is he turned up in the village where you was all living on Halloween ten years ago. You were just a year old. He came to your house and... And Hagrid suddenly pulled out a very dirty, spotted handkerchief and blew his nose with a sound like a foghorn. Sorry, he said, but it's that sad. Knew your mum and dad and nicer people you couldn't find. Anyway, you know who killed him. And then, and this is the real mystery of the thing, he tried to kill you too. Wanted to make a clean job of it, I suppose, or maybe he just liked killing by then. But he couldn't do it. Never wondered how you got that mark on your forehead. That's no ordinary cut. That's what you get when a powerful, evil curse touches you. Took care of your mum and dad and your house, even. But it didn't work on you. That's why you're famous, Harry. No one ever lived after he decided to kill him. No one except you. And he killed some of the best witches and wizards of the age. The McKinnons, the Bones, the Pruitts. And you was only a baby. And you lived. Something very painful was going on in Harry's mind. As Hagrid's story came to a close, he saw again the blinding flash of green light more clearly than he ever remembered it before. And he remembered something else for the first time in his life. A high, cold, cruel laugh. So we see again that flash of green light that Harry tried so hard to remember uh, in the earlier chapters, and here it's accompanied by this laugh, this single memory that certainly suggests that he is recalling this dreadful experience. So there was a wizard civil war that began some 20 years ago, back in, what would that be, 1971? I guess. For ten years, Voldemort grew in power. He attracted like-minded individuals to his cause, frightened them, intimidated them, promised them power. And then, (laughs) after finally deciding to go after Lily and James Potter, killed them, and was vanquished, when the implication seems to be the curse was turned back against him by Harry. Or 
I don't know. You probably want to watch your. Uh, you probably want to watch your uh, prepositions there. There's a great deal of implication that can be changed by changing a preposition. It's interesting because there are a couple of very quiet and very subtle storytelling beats that are happening there. The first of those, and again, this could be, you know, (laughs) I could be being simply too enchanted by the storytelling here and letting my imagination run away with me, but what are we here for if not that? It's interesting that Hagrid notes that Harry's father died, his mother died, and even his house was destroyed. The beat that confuses me there is whether or not his mother and father were in the house when they were killed. Whether or not the house was destroyed as a side effect of the curse that was used to kill his parents, or possibly a side effect of the simple attack on his parents, or whether the house was destroyed by the power that was unleashed when the curse struck at Harry. Moreover, here we have another suggestion that Dumbledore is a match for Voldemort, at least in terms of royal power, or at least a suggestion that Voldemort has good reason to be afeard of Dumbledore. We'll return to that at the very end of today's reading. First, though, we are going to... I'm going to wrap up here the the uh, beat of Voldemort's fate with this very short slide, and then I'll take your thoughts here. <laughs> I see a lot of stuff happening in the Twitter chat and on YouTube... Harry, meanwhile, still had questions to ask. Hundreds of them. But what happened to Vault? Sorry, I mean, you know who? Good question, Harry. Disappeared. Vanished. Same night he tried to kill you. Makes you even more famous. That's the biggest mystery, see? He was getting more and more powerful. Why'd he go? Some say he died. Codswallop, in my opinion. Don't know if he had enough human left in him to die. Some say he's still out there, biding his time like, but I don't believe it. People who was on his side came back to ours. Some of them came out of kind of trances. Don't reckon they would have done that if he was coming back. Most of us reckon he's still out there somewhere, but lost his powers. Too weak to carry on. Because something about you finished him, Harry. There was something going on that night he hadn't counted on. I don't know what it was. No one does. Something about you stumped him, all right. So here we have the most ominous of ominous foreshadowing, but what I love about this is that it is this kind of non-specific foreshadowing. There's something special. There's something out there. Something is brooding on the dark horizon. And it's not enough to make us immediately suspicious of any one person or any one particular set of circumstances, neither in this moment or, honestly, through the span of at least the first half of the book. There is something special about Harry. Something he hasn't earned or worked for or understood. This specialness, which we can call heroism... (laughs) We can, you know, make that convenient leap to call it heroism, at least at this point of the latent potential kind of sort. His specialness, his heroism is innate. It is not earned. And that is a foundational element of Western fantasy. This is an element that grew from the roots of the genre buried deep in fairy tale lore. Every farm boy who is the heir to the throne, every <laughs> wild kid who, who runs with wolves and has special powers because of it, none of these traits are earned. They're innate. In Western fantasy, in Harry Potter, you are special because of what you are, 
because of who you are, not necessarily because of what you do. Or is that true? It certainly seems to be the case here with Harry. This is the suggestion. Harry, even as a baby, even without, you know, full awareness, even without a memory of this moment, Harry was special. Is that specialness an innate characteristic? How does that specialness relate to the specialness of others? We'll continue to keep track of that as we move through the books. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, we're getting a couple of people pull out that wonderful line, not enough human left in him. I love that so much. That is so good. All right, let's uh, cancel that. And let me catch up with you guys here. Oh, my goodness. Um, oh, we're having some speculation here about the the house. Hmm. Would that be the house as in a house? Oh, the house of Potter. Oh, I see what you mean. In, in a kind of uh, a dynastic sense, the house of Potter. Um, well, it's not given that weight. Although that is an interesting turn of phrase. And Hagrid is given to these oddly arcane turns of phrase from time to time, isn't he? Hmm. Though, of course, I mean, the, the I guess the most obvious argument against that is that the house of Potter didn't end. Um, yeah, I took it to be something much more mundane. I took it to be something much more prosaic than that. But that's a really interesting. I should credit. Uh, I should credit Kay Clark for that thought. That's an interesting one. Yeah, yeah, yes. And uh, a couple of you are pulling out here. What about these other families? What about these? Um, oh, I moved past the. Uh, <laughs> I moved past the slide, of course. Um, yes, the McKinnons, the Bones, and the Pruitts. Yes, yes. Well we'll get a little to Harry's role and his fame and the double-edged sword that that fame may be in due course. Let me see here. Yes, a lot of you are, are, are grinding your teeth because it's so hard not to talk about the series as a whole. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> now, we have to stay in this moment because we have to give this moment the weight that, that it deserves. And I do know, I know that that's hard. I know that that's pressing. And this is one of the reasons that I want to push off things like talking about the, the houses of, of uh, Hogwarts. Yeah, I want to push this stuff off because you're right. I don't want to talk about it now. I don't want to I don't want to frustrate myself with that. And that stuff that's coming up in just a couple of chapters. Yes. Yes. And yeah, well, <laughs> Ariane is uh is leading toward one of the conclusions that I had too. Yes. Um which I will leave unspoken for now, but if you're in the chat, you know what Ariane is saying. Good, good, good. Yes, and Chris pulls out the idea of the magic mirror. Um, let's hold on to that, certainly. The idea of um, the idea of reflection in both a literal and symbolic sense. Let's, let's stick a pen in that, and we'll return to that at a, at a much more uh, direct and apposite moment in a few weeks' time. All right, guys, let's keep moving on here. Um, <clears throat> we... Move out of this sequence. This this enormous um, this enormous revelation about about Harry's. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say birth. I always conflate that moment with his birth. It always seems odd to me that he's a year old. Um, and I guess that makes sense. <laughs> but it's one of these details when you kind of lean toward this kind of, of fantastical framework, when you lean toward this literary tradition where you are 
referencing the types of fantasy stories that have been told before, and certainly the older fairy tale tradition, when you lean toward it, it becomes conspicuous when you deviate from that. In a fairy story, in an older version of this tale, had this book been written a hundred years ago, you know, it would have been his birth. Because his birth is so much more a, a magical, you know, vibrant, powerful time. And yet here he's a year old. And that's not a flaw in the writing. This is not a criticism by any stretch. I find it fascinating. I find it fascinating that I keep slipping back into the more kind of mythic sense of the story, even when the book itself strives to maintain this very functional kind of specific realism. All right. I'm taking my own sweet time tonight. I have to pick up the pace. Hagrid reveals at the end of the section that he, in fact, is not supposed to do magic because he was expelled from Hogwarts. Uh, This stands at odds with the idea that Harry has been kind of subconsciously creating magic. I guess magic can happen in the real world. It's kind of, there, there is, it's permitted, but it's not, you know, completely swamped and, and overwhelmed. Um, <clears throat> yes, yes. Um, a couple of people are saying that, that there's a lot of extra detail. There's a lot of extra weight uh, in the first book. There's a lot of um foreshadowing that reveals bigger movements in the story. I don't want to be any more specific than that right now, but yes, you're absolutely right. If you know where to look, it is there. Um, So, let me see where are we here. Right, so Hagrid was expelled and can't... um, He's not allowed to use magic. He was expelled from Hogwarts, which opens up the idea that Hogwarts may not be the simple, kind of trivial paradise that we may be expecting. Sure, Albus Dumbledore is a great man, and sure, Hogwarts stood against the scourge of Voldemort, but it's also a place in which Harry is going to be tested in, I guess, both the formal and informal senses of that word. He is going to be pushed, and failure is absolutely an option. Also, we should keep track, since I mentioned that we were keeping track of uh, of uh, specific dates here, we should mention that if uh, Hagrid was expelled in his third year, then he became groundskeeper, uh, or gamekeeper, I guess, at Hogwarts at the age of 14. <laughs> so lastly, let's look at the very end of the chapter. And uh, I didn't take this on a slide, but just, you know, refresh your memories here. This is where uh, Hagrid uh, snuggles Harry under his coat, tells him that there are probably mice in the pockets. And I wanted to contrast that with the end of Chapter 3, where we closed out last week's reading. Prior to Hagrid's arrival, Harry is freezing. He's alone. He's in darkness. Now he's warm by the fire. He's warmed by Hagrid's coat, both the physical coat itself and, of course, the essence of this this giant, huge-hearted man who wears it. Um, he's no longer alone. It's a very quiet kind of transition compared to the kinds of transitions that we're going to see in the next few chapters, but it's an important one nonetheless. Harry hasn't arrived yet at his place in the world, but now he knows about it. He's coming into his knowledge of himself and kind of coming into, in a broader sense, his destiny. Let's move on to chapter five. <clears throat> yes, ER Lamp tweets, and of course, Harry is only Voldemort's arch enemy because of spoiler barricade descends. Yes. <laughs> Oh, and Jennifer says there are some Native American cultures that believe the soul doesn't arrive until the first birthday. That's actually, yeah, that's um, 
that's not uncommon in, in some uh, Western European cultures too, back in medieval times when infant mortality was unfortunately high. Um, it's an awful thing to say, but, you know, pragmatically, you may not want to grow too attached to your child until that child has proved that he or she is going to be around for a little while. Um, yes. Oh, Hagrid had a precocious understanding of the creatures at Hogwarts. He could handle it. I absolutely believe that. Yes. The pink umbrella is being pulled out. Of course, the pink umbrella is a wonderful thing. Good, good, good. And the ages... <laughs> I'm a Mad Hatter on uh, the YouTube chat says, yes, I think their ages were a function of the, not the notorious JKR can't do math syndrome. Yes. Yes. Certainly... I think that can be exaggerated. And certainly there is no point, there is no way at this point in the book, in the series, to be sure what is deliberate and what is accidental. I would urge you, though, anytime you're reading this book, to look at, uh, look at the prose rather than the math. <laughs> Judge it by the intent of the prose rather than the specifics of the math, because the math is oftentimes, as, as has been said many times over, the math oftentimes leads you awry. Let's move on into chapter five, and I will struggle with pronouncing this because I always do. Um, how do you guys pronounce this? And I, I realize it's going to be incredibly difficult for you to tell me how you pronounce this. I have always said Diagon Alley. I have put the stress on the last syllable of, of Diagon because it sounds more, I don't know, wizardy. Um, I guess diagonally, diagon, diagon alley. Is that what we're doing? I'll probably switch back and forth between the two. I always prefer, yeah, diagon sounds more, I don't know. I, I like the, uh, I like the pun there to be a little more oblique, a little more obscure, but <laughs> I'm well aware that I pronounce it unusually. So, uh, if that makes you crazy, I do apologize in advance. Um, Harry awakes the following morning, the actual day of his 11th birthday. This entire event, this entire chapter, takes place on this one day. And he believes for a moment that he dreamed Hagrid's arrival, that he will wake up back in his cupboard under the stairs, which suggests that he imagines dreaming not only Hagrid, but the whole excursion to the hut on the rock, comma, the sea. Um, if not the whole letter affair in its entirety, but of course it turns out that he didn't dream a thing. Harry pays the owl who delivers Hagrid's newspaper, and we're introduced to wizard money. More on that in short order. And then to the idea of Gringotts, the goblin-held wizard bank. We head outside, and, and this is this is absolutely typical of what we're going to see throughout this chapter. Things are layered in. We'll get a reference, then we'll get an exploration of that idea, then we'll get the idea itself. That's layered all the way through this chapter. Um we head outside immediately to the boat, and I want you to notice that in the beginning of this chapter, no specific direct reference is made to the Dursleys at all. They are still, presumably, in the hut on the rock, and yet we never think of them or refer to them or worry about how they are going to get home. We take the boat, uh, and Harry is already here in another realm. He, he leaves the hut and kind of transitions back into a more mundane space. This simple boat. You know, they're not... Hagrid gives this account. You know, Harry asks him how he got there. Hagrid says, oh, I flew. With no further account at all. Um, Hagrid, though, 
takes the opportunity on the on the uh, way back there to tell us a little more about Gringotts exaggerating, presumably when he says that it is hundreds of miles beneath London. Uh, again, there's that math that you have to worry about. <laughs> and complains about the news of the Ministry of Magic, which echoes the idea of this bureaucracy, but also, far more importantly, gives us this sense of this larger world that, that nothing is simple, nothing is straightforward. There is there is complexity and human frailty and human fallibility in every possible direction. Um, oh, I think the, uh, yeah, I think the consensus is that I'm actually pronouncing it adequately. <laughs> Chris says he says the word diagon like the word polygon. I think I'm there with that diagon alley. Good, good, good. Excellent. <laughs> and Lance asks, yes, Hagrid says that uh, Gringotts is the only bank. I wondered about that, too, because certainly there are wizards in other parts of the world, and, and we're, we're open to that idea. I think what he means is that perhaps this is the London branch of the only functioning bank. So perhaps there is a Gringotts in Paris and, and Prague and Bucharest. Who knows? Yes. <laughs> All right. Um, we soon arrive, soon enough, at least, on the train to London, where Hagrid refers Harry to the supply list that was mentioned uh, in his letter, in addition to the very specific uniform requirements, which absolutely speaks to that idea of the British boarding school adventure. Um, <laughs> and the list of equipment. The list of equipment is particularly beautiful because it strikes this wonderfully evocative note between what you would think of as traditional wizard apparatus and the kind of tools and equipment that would have been used by natural philosophers of the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, which is, of course, all the more appropriate given the title and subject of this book. Um, where the supplies list stands out, though, of course, is in the list of books. <laughs> the course books. All students should have a copy of each of the following. The Standard Book of Spells, Grade 1, by Miranda Goshawk. A History of Magic, by Batilda Bagshot. Magical Theory, by Adelbert Waffling. A Beginner's Guide to Transfiguration, by Emmerich Switch. One Thousand Magical Herbs and Fungi, by Phyllida Spore. Magical Drafts and Potions, by Arsenius Jigger. Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, by Newt Scamander. And the Dark Forces, a guide to self-protection by Quentin Trimble. It's almost impossible not to love this. <laughs> it's almost impossible not to be just completely charmed by this. And every time I mentioned earlier about her lightness of touch, every time that I mentioned that it's not just it's not just the pun. And it's not just that the reference is a good one and that it's a smart one and that it's a bleak one. It's that the, if you didn't know the pun, the names work just as sounds. They work just beautifully. Were this an invented imaginary language, were this, you know, Tolkienian, these names would absolutely work. Even if you didn't know the meaning of the words underlying it, I have no trouble at all believing that A Beginner's Guide to Transfiguration is written by Emmerich Switch. That seems entirely appropriate. I love that. I mean, by all means, shout out about your favorites. Um, <laughs> I love these uh, fiercely. Um, <laughs> yes, poor Trimble. Poor Trimble indeed. Quentin Trimble. I like, yes, because that is perhaps one of the least, you know, specific in its, in its reference. Um, but I like the idea both of, 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 you know, a querulous tremble. 
that's clearly, you know, the, the idea of this, this fearful, you know, quivering, uh, wreck of a person who, uh, of course guides you to protection against the dark arts. Um, let's consider for a moment, not just the great names. <laughs> the names are beautiful. Absolutely. Let's consider though, what this list of course books tells us about life at Hogwarts and in a broader, more expanded way, the, the world of wizarding. The standard book of spells seems simple enough, as does a history of magic. Magical theory, here we have our, you know, theoretical class rather than our applied class, and, and of course, Adelbert Waffling is the perfect person to write it. But then we have very specific ideas. We have a beginner's guide to transfiguration, the transforming of one thing into another. Uh, Emmerich here being uh, representative of Emmerich, this idea of, of wholeness or completeness and switch, of course, being transformative. But more importantly, the notion that transfiguration is an elementary skill. Then 1,000 Magical Herbs and Fungi by Phyllida Spore. The name there, beautiful, a little more direct perhaps. But here we have the idea of, of alchemy, you know, of potion crafting. Magical drafts and potions, more alchemy. More. <laughs> There's uh, a, a more direct kind of, of potion brewing um, tradition there, I suppose. Tradition is, is as good a word as any. Then fantastic beasts and where to find them. Not just the notion that there are fantastic beasts in the world, but that they ought to be sought, that they should be found, presumably for yet more ingredients. And then, of course, the Dark Force is a guide to self-protection. <laughs> the idea that fully one-eighth of the first-year syllabus is given over to protecting yourself against the forces of evil, I think tells us a great deal about the... Uh, about the uh, the fate of many young wizards. But really, what we're seeing is a very kind of practical, very hands-on approach to magic. For all that we are going to talk about magic words and magic spells and wands and things of that sort, it would seem that a good chunk of wizarding is the creation of potions, the, the creation of filters, of, of practical, physical applications, herbalism, alchemy, these kinds of skills, these kinds of natural sciences. I, I think that's fascinating because it's unexpected, and I'm not sure that it's completely followed through on, you know? Although these do, well, I guess I can foreshadow enough to say that these do match pretty closely with um, the classes that we'll see in due course. All right, let's come back out of there. <clears throat> Excuse me. We pass through London in a blur. I need to keep pushing on if I'm going to be done on time. We pass through London in a blur before arriving at the Leaky Cauldron, wherein Harry gets his first taste of actual fame. Good Lord, said the bartender, peering at Harry. Isn't this... Can this be... The leaky cauldron had suddenly gone completely still and silent. Bless my soul, whispered the old bartender. Harry Potter, what an honor. He hurried out from behind the bar, rushed toward Harry and seized his hand, tears in his eyes. Welcome back, Mr. Potter, welcome back. Harry didn't know what to say. Everyone was looking at him. The old woman with the pipe was puffing on it without realizing it had gone out. Hagrid was beaming. There was a great scraping of chairs, and in the next moment, Harry found himself shaking hands with everyone in the leaky cauldron. 
Doris Crockford, Mr. Potter, I can't believe I'm meeting you at last. So proud, Mr. Potter, I'm just so proud. Always wanted to shake your hand, I'm all of a flutter. Delighted, Mr. Potter, just can't tell you Diggle's the name, Deedless Diggle. I've seen you before, said Harry, as Deedless Diggle's top hat fell off in the excitement. You bowed to me once in a shop. He remembers, cried Deedless Diggle, looking around at everyone. Can you hear that? He remembers me. Harry shook hands again and again. Doris Crockford kept coming back for more. So here we see the full realization, both of Harry's immediate fame and also, of course, the validation of his memories that he didn't, uh, <laughs> he didn't imagine all of these fleeting interactions with wizardly folk through the years. But what really stands out there is the line, Welcome back, Mr. Potter. Welcome back. Because now more than ever, though though Hagrid has been sent as an envoy into the Muggle world to rescue him, now Harry has really begun his journey. The Leaky Cauldron is the threshold between the two. It is the... Uh, and a couple of you are anticipating my next question. Yes, we'll, we'll, we'll get right to that. Um... <laughs> Um, this really is the threshold between the Muggle world and the Wizard world in more than, you know, the single uh, practical sense of this is the point of of transit between one world and the other. This is far more than that. This is where wizards congregate. This is wizard community. This is wizard life. And Harry is being welcomed back into that. So this is the question that E.R. Lamp is raising directly on Twitter here. I still don't understand why everyone's so impressed with Harry. He was a baby. He didn't actually do anything. Even if he did do something, it doesn't occur to them that it might be a sore subject. (laughs) Yes. But here's the thing. Celebrity is so rarely about the celebrity. You know, fame is much less about... The person who is famous and more about the virtues that we want to see reflected by our community. This is the, this, I, I guess, is, is the self reinforcing kind of the self mythologizing part of Harry Potter's legend. He is being celebrated not for what he's done or even necessarily, I think, who he is, but for what he represents. Triumph. He survived. He moved on. He, well, cast Voldemort into the darkness, depending on which version of Hagrid's story you, uh, <laughs> depending on which version of Hagrid's story you choose to believe. We're introduced in this moment to Professor Quirrell, who, for reasons too numerous to explain right now, we will talk about more in due course. Um, let's focus instead on Hagrid leading Harry outside and opening the archway to Diagon Alley. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, this transition here, we're immediately in this swirl of detail, of motion, of movement, of color. All of this life and vibrancy is is sudden and it's immediate. And we are left, as Harry is, to kind of float along on top of it. We can't get a full sense of it. And this is one of the ways in which I think the film kind of fails as an adaptation. Because it it is all too literal. In the film, we actually see all the stuff in Diagon Alley, and it's awesome and imaginative and well put together and all of that stuff. But what it doesn't communicate is this this whirlwind sense of being transported to another world, of being so completely out of your depth. And when you can see it, when it's in sharp focus and it's all right there and you can even pause your DVD and look at the details, it's not the same. It's not the same impression at all. 
We'll talk about the film at the end of the seminar series, I promise. Um, so we're in this swirl of these half-completed ideas, these impressions, these colors, these... these, these uh, <laughs> I was going to say imprecise details, but of course that's not true. It's, it's the specificity of the details that makes them work, but, but imprecise to Harry, at least. Um, it, it all passes in a blur, and suddenly we are at Gringotts. Um, in Gringotts, we get this series of, of very kind of mundane applications of magic, much as we saw with the uh, put-outer, or come to that serious Black's flying, uh, flying motorcycle. We move through this. They proceed by minecart to the Gringotts vault, uh, both to retrieve some money for Harry's school supplies and to complete the mission given to Hagrid by Dumbledore. Without incident, they retrieve some measure of the apparently significant wealth that Harry's parents had scrolled away for him, and we are introduced more fully than before to the concept of wizard money. The gold ones are galleons, he explained. Seventeen silver sickles to a galleon and twenty-nine nuts to a sickle. It's easy enough. Right, that should be enough for a couple of terms. We'll keep the rest safe for you. He turned to Griphook. Vault 713 now, please. And can we go more slowly? This is one of the more uniquely British conceits uh, in the entire thing. I, I, I kind of love this. In old British money, which remained broadly in effect from the Norman conquest until, believe it or not, decimalization occurred in 1971. 1971, ladies and gentlemen. In Britain, prior to that date, the lowest denomination was a coin called a farthing. Two farthings equaled a half penny. Two half pennies equaled a penny. Six pennies equaled, as you might expect, a sixpence. Two sixpences equaled a shilling. Two shillings and sixpence equaled half a crown. Two half crowns equaled a crown. Four crowns equaled one pound. That means that one British pound was 20 shillings or 240 pence. The wizarding system is not that much more strange. It is also worth a note, of course, let me cancel that slide, that the small bag of money, the relatively small bag of money that Hagrid takes is worth a couple of terms of private education. Uh, it's pretty clear that Lily and James Potter left their only son fairly well off. We proceed down to Vault 713, where Harry marvels at the security system and Hagrid retrieves the small, innocuous, brown paper-wrapped package, and all too soon, they are back on the street. Um, <clears throat> and Chris asks, <laughs> easy enough, did JKR specifically pick prime multiples? Well, I'd be loath to say that she did anything purposeful when it comes to the aforementioned math, but yes. It, it is, of course, nigh impossible to work in that system, but reflective of, of British currency at the time. Or not at the time, but British currency prior to 1971. Um, Hagrid decides that all of this taking care of Harry is just a little too much on his nerves, and he slips off for a quick restorative drink in the Leaky Cauldron while Harry shops for supplies alone in Madame Malkin's. He talks a while with the previously mentioned pale-faced boy, who I'm sure we won't meet again, who gives us a little exposition about schoolhouses, about Quidditch, about the rumors about Hagrid, and of course the first suggestion that the old wizarding families, the, the elite aristocrats of the wizarding world, look down on the new money, on the bourgeoisie. Um, we'll revisit all of that in due course, and a lot of it next week, honestly, when we just have a little more material. Rather than speculate now and, and, and spend too long going around in circles, we'll talk about a lot of that next week. Um, 
For now, though, the the clearest signal given us by the pale-faced boy is that Dudleys are not restricted to the Muggle world. And again, we're getting here the sense that Hogwarts is going to be a magical place. It is going to be a place of tremendous opportunity for Harry, but it is not going to be a place devoid of challenge or conflict or, or struggle. You know, he is going to be tested here. And even the fame in its own way. Though, again, I guess we'll, we'll return to that a little more directly next week. Um, Hagrid even offers us a little more explanation of each of these things, including the revelation that members of House Slytherin, despite the cheerful name, are somewhat bad news. They gather the rest of the necessary supplies, and Hagrid makes Harry a birthday present of an owl, as you do. Then they head to Ollivanders. And this is one of the tonal shifts that I was remarking upon earlier. Let me call up the slide here. Um, If I can persuade my computer to be in any way compliant... There we go. All right. The last shop was narrow and shabby. Peeling gold letters over the door read Ollivanders, makers of fine wands since 382 BC. A single wand lay on a faded purple cushion in the dusty window. A tinkling bell ran somewhere in the depths of the shop as they stepped inside. It was a tiny place, empty except for a single spindly chair that Hagrid sat on to wait. Harry felt strangely as though he had entered a very strict library. He swallowed a lot of new questions that had just occurred to him, and looked instead at the thousands of narrow boxes piled neatly right up to the ceiling. For some reason, the back of his neck prickled. The very dust and silence in here seemed to tingle with some secret magic. "'Good afternoon,' said a soft voice. Harry jumped. Hagrid must have jumped too, because there was a loud crunching noise, and he got quickly off the spindly chair." An old man was standing before them, his wide, pale eyes shining like moons through the gloom of the shop. Hello, said Harry, awkwardly. Ah, yes, said the man. Yes, yes. I thought I'd be seeing you soon, Harry Potter. It wasn't a question. You have your mother's eyes. It seems only yesterday she was in here herself, buying her first wand, ten and a quarter inches long, swishy, made of willow. Nice wand for charm work. Mr. Ollivander moved closer to Harry. Harry wished that he would blink. Those silvery eyes were a bit creepy. Your father, on the other hand, favored a mahogany wand, eleven inches, pliable, a little more power and excellent for transfiguration. Well, <laughs> I say your father favored it. It's really the wand that chooses the wizard, of course. So, here again, we have another moment of transition, of passage from one world to the next. As we leave this riotous cacophony of Diagon Alley behind and find ourselves here in this still silence, this almost sacred place, it's interesting that the text connects it to a library because, of course, it feels to me like a very, you know, similar kind of space. It almost feels like a church. The silence. The sense of both serenity and sacred weight. 
I also should draw attention to the fact that this is going to be a recurring theme, a, rec- a theme so recurring, in fact, that in due course, Harry himself will tire of the comparison being made. As we know by now, Harry looks like his father, but he has his Murray, he has, excuse me, his mother's eyes. Um, our second, <laughs> our second uh, reference to that just today. So let's talk a little about these wands. Um, here we have Harry's mother's wand. Ten and a quarter inches long, swishy, made of willow. Nice charm. A nice wand, excuse me, for charm work. I love that even in the description of the wand, even careful and precise and focused as it is, it is still nonetheless evocative. It feels as though it tells us a little something about Lily Potter. It feels as though, I mean, Willow, of course, draws uh, all kinds of, of classical comparisons to femininity. It's a wand for charm work, a very feminine school of magic, one might suppose. It, it's There's something essentially feminine about it, and yet not in a stereotypical kind of, of cheap way. Rather, there's a core strength of femininity that is at least represented to me by that text. If you guys disagree with me on that one, by all means, pipe up and let me know. Uh, And for James's wand, of course, uh, a little longer, uh, a little less swishy, a little more power, excellent for transfiguration, and mahogany, of course, a hard, darker wood. It is a more masculine and of course it, it's so you know trivially simple to tumble into you know phallic imagery when we're talking about once and i want to absolutely kind of circumvent that because i mean well if nothing else there's no fresh material to be mined there uh, instead what we have here is something that is that is masculine and and transfiguration is an interesting school of magic for james to be particularly adept with And then we have the introduction of this last core idea, that it is rather the wand that chooses the wizard. I want, at this point, to to pull out... I mentioned that we would arrive at uh, at one of the big themes of Harry Potter, or at least one of... I hesitate to call it a theme because I'm not sure that it's really... I'm not sure that the book takes a definitive stance on it. Rather, this is an idea that is interrogated again and again through the text of this book and through the text of the whole series. Um, I want to talk a little about medievalism, because one of the things that we see about Ollivanders is that it is tremendously old. And we have no reason to believe that this is just wizard marketing. <laughs> There's every indication that it has, in fact, been around for a very, very long time. And one of the things that we're going to see when we arrive, most specifically at Hogwarts, though there are already hints of it here and there through the through the text that we've covered so far, one of the things we're going to see most powerfully when we arrive at Hogwarts is this idea of medievalism and the the... I guess, regressive, the historically regressive uh, views and preferences of the wizarding community. They embody one of the core tenets of medievalism, which was that the past was a golden age and we have fallen from it. The older something is, the more likely it is to be worthy, to be admirable, to be good. Whereas modernity, the fast-paced facile plastic world of the muggle is instead obsessed with the new. It has no time for the old. It wants the next thing. And the next thing is always going to be better and stronger and faster and cooler than the old thing. This 
tension between medievalism and modernity, th- those two aspects are going to be explored in other ways. It's not just about, you know, whether you look backward to a golden age and you, you value antiquity and tradition as the wizards do, or you look forward to a bright, shiny, stainless steel future and you value innovation and progress as the muggles do, though there's precious little actual progress uh, in the muggle world, at least as it's depicted in Harry Potter. Um, we're going to look at the ways in which the wizarding world's medievalism and the muggle world's modernism, uh, modernism, I pronounced that in an interesting way, modernity slash modernism. Um, we're going to look at the ways in which those two ideas, those two, those two views interact and, and open up an interesting tension, um, particularly for the people who are caught most directly between those two worlds, our first-year students at Hogwarts. So we will get to that in due course. As I said, like, like so many of the ideas introduced in these chapters, it's going to be explored more fully. But this really is the first time that we get something to really, really grab a hold of here. There's no indication beyond broad description. There's no indication of how old the Leaky Cauldron is or Diagon Alley is or, goodness knows, even Hagrid is. There's certainly no sense of how old Gringotts is, though again, we have this sense of antiquity, and not just antiquity in the sense that it's been around for a long time, but antiquity in the sense that it is preserved, that it has taken on an authority of tradition. That's important, we're going to learn, to wizards. And perhaps nothing is more important than this simple act, this act of initiation, the passing of the wand. Because it's clear that while he buys the wand, it's so much more than that. And we see that, too, not just from Harry, but from Hagrid. He had his wand. That wand was broken. It's made clear to us that even though he's not supposed to still have it, he still has it. Why wouldn't Hagrid just buy another wand? Why wouldn't any wizard just buy another wand? Buy a better wand? Buy a cooler wand? But it's not about the purchase. It's about the connection. And it's interesting here that we see a relationship that is so often explored in in tales of witches and wizards in the guise of the familiar, you know, the, the kindred spirit that is called to the witch, to the wizard. But here it's much less the familiar. He literally does go and buy an owl. <laughs> it's, it really is that simple. The wand, though, the wand has to be specific and the wand has to be perfect. Let's get into, in fact, the details of Harry's wand. And then... <laughs> I'm seeing people are telling me to stick pins in this stuff. Yes, 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 yes. yes laura says double entendre to the word charms too lily was charming and jennifer says transfiguration you are not what people think you are yeah of course of course and isn't there already and uh, this too i think well we're going to explore this we're going to interrogate this idea less thoroughly in this book than we are in much later books but there really is something to the idea that that magic is Dishonest is too is too great a word. Um, I'll need to think on that. I'll need to think on that because there is an idea that becomes evident later that that you know magic that power is corruptive. That well, in fact, you know what? Let's let's actually move on with the slide because we're going to address a related idea right at the end of this slide. Let's go here. Tricky customer. Not to worry. We'll find the perfect match here somewhere. I wonder now. Yes, why not? Unusual combination. Holly and phoenix feather. Eleven inches, nice and supple. Harry took the wand. He felt a sudden warmth in his fingers. 
He raised the wand above his head, brought it swishing down through the dusty air and a stream of red and gold sparks shot from the end like a firework, throwing dancing spots of light on the walls. Hagrid whooped and clapped, and Mr. Ollivander cried, Oh, yes, bravo, yes, indeed, a very good... Well, 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 how curious. How very curious. He put Harry's wand back in its box and wrapped it in brown paper, still muttering, Curious. Curious. Sorry, said Harry, but what's curious? Mr. Ollivander fixed Harry with his pale stare. I remember every wand I've ever sold, Mr. Potter. Every single wand. It so happens that the phoenix whose tail feather is in your wand gave another feather. Just one other. It is very curious indeed that you should be destined for this wand when its brother... Why, its brother gave you that scar. Harry swallowed. Yes. Thirteen and a half inches. You... Curious indeed how these things happen. The wand chooses the wizard, remember? I think we must all expect great things from you, Mr. Potter. After all, he who must not be named did great things. Terrible, yes, but great. Harry shivered. He wasn't sure he liked Mr. Ollivander too much. He paid seven gold galleons for his wand, and Mr. Ollivander bowed them from his shop. Dun 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 <laughs> The wand that is the brother of this wand gave you that scar. It's an interesting and provocative idea. But the detail of this is going to be explored much more fully later in this book, later in this series. For now, I'm much more interested in that last point that Ollivander makes. He who must not be named did great things. Terrible, yes, but great. And this echoes the conversation that McGonagall had with Dumbledore back there in Chapter 1, when she said that he was greater than Voldemort, except that he wouldn't do the things that Voldemort would do. That he was too noble. Power and its application. The pursuit of power. The preservation of power. These are going to be critically important throughout the span of this book. And honestly, let's face it, throughout the span of most fiction, particularly fiction aimed at children. The way in which we interact with power, the way in which we desire it and amass it and exercise it, that does speak very fundamentally, very primarily to our process of, of maturation, our, our process of finding our space, our place in the world. And here we're having it addressed directly, that it is not Harry's innate specialness. Because after all, Mr. Ollivander recognizes Harry, but doesn't fawn over him. He seems far less impressed with Harry as a survivor of a terrible attack, as the boy who lived, and much more impressed as someone who is in possession of great power. I think we must expect great things from you, Mr. Potter. It's interesting. It's interesting stuff. So we're going to continue to look onto that. The other thing that stands out to me about that one particular scene is that here is Ollivander talking very casually about he who must not be named. And Hagrid 
has not a word to say. Hagrid is completely silent, which just reinforces to me the sense of the sacred space, this this library church atmosphere. I have to say, I love it. I absolutely adore it. Um, the this one particular scene <laughs> really raises the bar. I think on all that we've seen before. This isn't just my favorite part in this reading tonight. It's my favorite part in the book so far. And it is the single scene that really prompts you about the rest of the book and more specifically the rest of the series. Here we see a movement that is going to be, that is going to be profound in its scope. We are going to see this story travel into dark places and engage with the very biggest and most important ideas. And these are the scenes, this scene in particular, that prime us for that, that show us that this is what we're in for. I rather love it. We leave Ollivanders behind, and I leave that slide behind, uh, as Harry unwinds his path back through Diagon Alley, and I urge you, I didn't put it on the slide, but I urge you to go and read that passage again to track how he retraces his steps back through Diagon Alley, back through the Leaky Cauldron, back out through into the streets of London, all the way back to the train station. It is an unraveling of the progress that he has made so far. Um, And he ends this passage in a plastic chair eating a fast food hamburger. A more mundane and unmagical sight, it is hard to imagine. Harry even, and there's an element of heartbreak here, he clings to the vision of Hagrid as his train pulls out uh, of the station. He peers out looking for Hagrid until the gentle giant fades from view for one last time. So, Harry makes this transition back from the magical world into the mundane, and it's treated at the end of the chapter as though something has been lost, as though he really has retraced his steps. He has he has retreated. He has regressed. Except, of course, for his belongings, because he's still equipped. He still has the supplies. So let's track the transitions through these two chapters. The first is from the not entirely mundane. I, I discussed earlier how Vernon Dursley's, you know, fear of magic and, and, and intractability in the face of the letters arriving forces him out from the mundane world, out from his normal environment into the supernatural realm of this, this nameless rock in the sea. Um, so we begin on that not entirely mundane rock. Um, and we transition back to the real world, then via the leaky cauldron into the magical realm, the otherworldliness of which waxes and wanes as we move from store to store, encounter to encounter. Certainly, Gringotts is more magical, more arcane than, you know, the shop where uh, Harry meets Draco, the pale-faced boy, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I was hoping I would keep that up through the whole thing. Um then the the magical realm reaches, uh, uh, reaches excuse me its zenith in Ollivanders, where the transition from from the rest of Diagon Alley into Ollivanders is almost more pronounced than the transition from you know London into the Leaky Cauldron and thence into Diagon Alley itself. Um, and then we rewind this conspicuous rewinding back retracing of our steps. The transition between worlds is always important in fiction. I don't think. I've ever read a book in which the hero traverses those boundaries so lightly or so often. This is a book that is not about the boy leaving his world behind and going off adventuring. This is about something much more 
much more real than that, something much more true than that. Because in real life, we don't leave the past in the past. We don't achieve hard breaks. Human beings, it has been said, are very bad at full stops. Here, Harry Potter isn't isn't moving from one world to another. Okay, let me put it like this. There is a version of this story where Hagrid sweeps in. He picks up Harry off the rock. He carries him to Diagon Alley where they pick up the stuff and he takes him to Hogwarts. And we never speak of the Dursleys again. I would argue that's not just a possible version of this story. That is the far more common version of this story. I would argue that most writers would go in that direction because we're interested in Hogwarts. We're not interested in the mundane realm. But this book, it thwarts our attempt to leave the Dursleys behind. And it does so constantly, consistently. For books to come, we're going to be dealing with this interaction between the magical and the mundane. And not always in a negative way, not always in a regressive way. Certainly we're going to meet in the very next chapter some examples of a kind of mundanity, I guess, um, that absolutely illuminate and enrich the world, even the magical realm itself. So Harry isn't leaving the mundane world behind. He's not making a hard and fast break into his new life. Instead, we have this really messy, muddy... And I urged you all... um, I urged you all to uh, go and read the first page of the next chapter from the uh, first page of chapter six, because we understand at that point that Harry spends a month with the Dursleys before he goes off to Hogwarts. Okay, minor spoilers for next week, I guess. A month, though. Why did we do this? Why did we go on this urgent shopping trip on the day of Harry's 11th birthday? Why were there so many other children shopping for school on that day, up to and including Draco Malfoy? Why was all of this happening now, only for our adventure to be stalled for a month? While this is a children's book, by which I mean nothing more than it's aimed at children, I certainly, you know, clearly I wouldn't be here talking about it if I believed that it didn't contain real literary merit and a real, you know, compelling and interesting and rewarding fictional experience for for children of all ages. Um, Well, this is a children's book. It deals with the big issues in life in a very adult and sophisticated and thoughtful manner. And that I genuinely believe is the single reason why it is the book that it is, why this series is the series that it is, why Harry Potter succeeded where countless other similar stories failed. It treats this stuff seriously. Love and loss and family and obligation and duty and honor and power, the big ideas the big principles that guide us, the virtues that we hold to, the sins that we abhor. It treats this stuff seriously. And in treating it seriously, it refuses to give simple and slight and facile answers. The reason that Harry doesn't go to Hogwarts at the end of his 11th birthday is that people don't go to Hogwarts at the end of their 11th birthday. People don't have clean breaks like that. A giant doesn't show up and fix all your problems for you. A giant can show up and tell you that a better life awaits, can help you, can encourage you, but can't take that step for you. This is why Harry Potter is special. This is one of the reasons, let me rephrase that, why Harry Potter is special. Um, And I find it enormously striking. Let's look very directly at the first real flicker that we get of some of this, some of this stuff, some of these suggestions, some of this this landscape here, um, this is between Harry and Hagrid in their last exchanges. They're waiting in the train station. 
Harry says, Everyone thinks I'm special, he said at last. All those people in the leaky cauldron, Professor Quirrell, Mr. Ollivander. But I don't know anything about magic at all. How can they expect great things? I'm... Behind the wild beard and eyebrows, he wore a very kind smile. Don't you worry, Harry. You'll learn fast enough. Everyone starts at the beginning at Hogwarts. You'll be just fine. Just be yourself. I know it's hard. You've been singled out, and that's always hard. But you'll have a great time at Hogwarts. I did. Still do, as a matter of fact. (laughs) The simple... (laughs) The simple perspective, the simple philosophy of Hagrid. Harry, at this point, is already recognizing that his fate, even at Hogwarts, is not going to be like other kids. That he is going to have to deal, as Dumbledore feared, he is going to have to deal with the consequences of his fame. But he's still also going to have to be the person that he is. He doesn't know this stuff. He can't be expected to be the legend. Because he's going to have his hands full being the boy. All right. Let's come back from there. Let's wrap up. Um, 10.30. 10.30. Okay, I'll take five minutes more questions. Um, oh, you guys lost audio? Did it cut out, cut out for about 15 seconds? Oh, dear. Okay. Um, oh, I'm sorry about that, guys. Was that during the last slide? Okay. Oh, it was. Okay. So the slide was on the screen. Well, I guess at least you could read it. You just lost a little of my voiceover, maybe. Um, Yes. Yes. So Lance is raising an interesting point here. Um, Hopefully the uh, podcast audio will go off without a hitch and you'll be able to catch that uh, valuable few seconds of me doing the Hagrid voice. (laughs) Um. Lance is raising an interesting point here in the YouTube chat. He's basically saying that what we have seen so far is prologue and that we haven't seen the conflict yet, that we haven't arrived at it yet. That's an interesting question, isn't it? We discussed last week, do we know yet what our story is? Because it's only when you know what the story is that you can tell when the story begins. If this is the story of the boy who was rescued from the Dursleys and went off to have a wonderful life, then it could end any minute, and then we'll be able to judge what was prologue and what wasn't. And it's complicated, too, by the fact that, you know, I've been... I've been suspicious. Suspicious is far too judgmental a word. Um, I am hesitant to accept as absolute truth everything that J.K. Rowling will tell you about her experience of writing these books. One of the things that she will tell you, if you read interviews, if you, if you, particularly now, I think this has kind of become more solidified as the years have wore on. Um, J.K. Rowling will tell you that she had every detail of these books planned out in advance, that she knew exactly where they were going, and I'm not sure that that is true. And frankly, if it is, God, I wish that it wasn't, because how dull to spend 10 years of your life writing a series of books where you already know every incidental detail, to have no space left for creativity in that story. And I don't think that it's true, and I think that you can tell as as she becomes more sophisticated um, and in some ways more ambitious in her storytelling, and honestly, that transition happens between book one and book two, you know? Um, It it happens really early in its run. Um, 
I think that it is difficult to judge where the story begins without knowing exactly where the story ends. It is difficult to know where this story begins without knowing where J.K. Rowling intended the story to end, both in this volume and in the series as a whole. It's difficult to judge what is prologue. And I completely see your point, Lance, that we're not exactly hitting yet our central conflict, at least in terms of the immediate practical conflict of the book, because yes, the the kind of the driving impetus behind the plot arrives when we make it to Hogwarts. Or you could argue, you know, when we when we arrive on platform nine and three quarters as we will next week. But in a broader sense, I mean you guys know. I'm usually very keen to cut stuff. I'm usually very keen to say, no, this isn't your inciting incident. This isn't where you start. I'm not sure that I feel that way about this because I feel as though the the, the landscape that this book traverses is broad enough to allow for these possible, to allow for the interpretations that would validate these opening chapters as, as being a necessary conditional part of the story. But your mileage may vary. Okay, says, as the children and audience age. Um, oh, is this with regard to, to J.K. Rowling's increasing sophistication? I, I don't think that um, that certainly does account for some of it. Yes, yes, clearly. She, she raises the level of discourse throughout these books as her audience ages and as, as the characters age. I think that's it, really, as the protagonists age more than... Uh, more than her intended audience for whatever that means. Um, but also there's just, there's even more kind of um, purpose and specificity in her storytelling. And she's willing to lay things out and have them traverse longer arcs. Um, but of course, we'll talk specifically about that. I doubt this will be the last Harry Potter book that we discuss here. Um, yes, yes, yes. Yes, and we, a couple of people are talking here in the YouTube thing here about um, yes, that there were there were high level plans laid out that uh, I Heart Weasley said she had to rewrite a bunch of, of I think Goblet because of a major plot hole. That kind of stuff always happens. That that's not uh, that is not a testament to you know a weakness as a writer. That that is absolutely inevitable. And honestly, you're going to get better ideas. You're going to see things in a new way. You are going to be a different person. You know, the person who sat down to write the seventh book in the Harry Potter series was not the person who sat down to write the first book, and nor should she be. You know, you shouldn't be locked. This this is this a a wonderful arc that strong writers transcribe through their careers as they tighten their skills, as they become more swift and, and, and deft with their prose, as they become more confident in their storytelling and in trusting their audience to come to them. And of course, with J.K. Rowling, she had a baked-in audience, you know. Once she was arriving at these later books, she knew that people were going to read them. So she could afford to be a little more ambitious in her storytelling. And I think it works, and I think it plays off. All right. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of discussion. I, I really will. We will definitely return to the notion of an inciting incident when we conclude the book. Because it really is only when this stuff is done can we say definitively, oh, this is where we started. Okay. Let's see. What else do we have here? Oh, I'm terribly sorry about that audio bug. I'm, I'm uh... Yeah, that happened. Was it last week or the week before that happened, too? Yeah. 
I'll need to check through. I do apologize for the audio and video problems. Both the audio and the video were a little less uh, high fidelity than I wished them to be last week, but hopefully they'll be a little better this week. All right. All right, we're getting into some very deep uh, analysis here on the YouTube channel. I urge you all to take it over to the StoryWonk forum at forum.storywonk.com. If you have other ideas during the week, if you have questions, if you have specific points that you would like me to raise, if you can't believe that I skipped over that thing that you really wanted me to talk about this week, get in touch. Email me podcast at storywonk.com or, in fact, I guess more directly at alistair.storywonk.com. The simple truth is that all of those email addresses go straight to me anyway, so I'll get it no matter where you send it to. Guys, thank you so much. Uh, It is... Let me see here. Oh, 25 to 11. I'm getting it just after my time, but that's pretty good. Thank you so much for hanging out. I will see you all next week. Oh, let me, in fact, before I say goodbye, call up this final slide so that we can talk about what we're going to cover next week. Next week, back and there again, chapters six and seven, we return to the mundane world and, of course, to the Dursleys. And then, well, great adventure awaits. I think you guys all know what's coming in next week's reading. A lot, a lot to talk about. I can't wait to get into it all. Thank you so much for hanging out. Thank you so much for your thoughts, your insight, your brilliance as ever. I'll see you guys next week. (laughs) 